Well, dear congregation, I would ask you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to that passage of God's holy word that I read to you in your hearing just there a moment ago. 2 Kings chapter 13, and uh, reading verse 1 in the 3 and 20th year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. Our minds are here fixed upon Israel in the north. Last week we were considering Judah in the south, the Holy Spirit here going through Second Kings and also in Chronicles, these almost parallel passages of God's word are showing us the things that are taking place between these two nations. Once they were one nation, the twelve tribes were split after Solomon, he had a son Rehoboam and the nation was then split because he did not follow the godly counsel of the older men. And then there was Jeroboam, spoken of here, who began with this golden calf worship in Israel in the north, fearing that Israel in the north would amalgamate with Judah and Benjamin in the south. And that sin of pragmatism has never left the nation. They have perpetuated on in this terrible Sin. How many times have we read of this sin of Jeroboam, which he caused Israel to sin? I've counted at least 18 times. I'm sure there are many more allusions to it in the Old Testament. But it is a reminder, isn't it, that false worship, even if it's and here given and done in the name of the Lord, how hard it is to eradicate it. Because people think they're doing something in the name of God. And because they feel right about it. God was never to be represented by any image. I remind you that it is a breaking of the second commandment. If we idolize, if we worship anything but God and what it leads to. It leads to not only God's disapprobation, but it leads to God's Judgment, it will lead to hell. We are only to worship the one, the true living God. My friends, God is insulted. And any idea of worshipping an object that we make, we make that object to be God, it is highly insulting to God. And it brings down the wrath, my friends, of Almighty God. We are reminded of this sin time and time and time again. They made golden calves to worship. Aaron did it. 3,000 men were destroyed there in Exodus 32. They have been doing it now for centuries in Israel, and they still have not learnt the lesson. And yet we have another king rising up to be king. In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. So 
That is a time marker. Jehoah has the son of Jehu. Remember Jehu, he was a wicked king in the north. He began to reign in Israel, in Samaria, and reigned 17 years. And not only did he do evil, but his son, Jehoahaz, began to do evil and did not depart from that sin of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. And I must remind you too, it's a reminder, that when we sin, not only do we sin against God, but we can cause others to sin. And God had said that he would visit the sins upon this nation, even to the third generation. Now, we thought last week, didn't we, of the king of the south. Joash, also called Jehoash. It's another, it's an elongated form of the name. As we'll see, there are two, actually, two Joashes, as we'll glean this morning. Joash, in the south, in Judah, appeared to be a saved man, but he wasn't saved. He ordered all the breaches, all the breaks in the temple to be repaired. Remember there was a time when he was just a little infant and his grandmother, Athaliah, she killed all the seed royal, all of her grandchildren. She had destroyed. She was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And I remind you that there is that constant conflict in this world between the godly and the ungodly. The righteous, those who were made righteous through the righteousness of Jesus Christ are hated by the ungodly of this world, the wicked. And she sought to kill all the seed royal. And that little boy was spared. His father's sister snatched him away and hid him with Jehoadiah in the temple in Jerusalem. And in the seventh year, he was made king to the horror and to the disgust of Athaliah. And she called everybody a traitor, especially Jehoadiah. Now that little king, seven years, he was under the great influence of Jehoadiah. And he, he seemed to do right, we're told, so long as that king reigned, or, or, or that priest was there, should I say, and he was alive. Look at chapter 12, verse 2. And Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days wherein Jehoadiah, the priest, instructed him. It was because that priest was alive. He did the right thing. But he didn't break down the high places, did he? Or the groves. Yes, he had the temple breaches fixed. And repaired, but as soon as that godly priest that saved his life and hid him and that anointed him with oil to make him king, as soon as that godly priest died, well, you see, a, a changed man, didn't you? We saw how when Syria came up against Judah, how he very quickly gave all the gold and all the silver and all the important things that belonged to the temple. He gave them all away to the king of Syria. There was no faith in that man, no fight. He didn't trust the living God, but he gave it up all so quickly. And I reminded you of that text, buy the truth and sell it not. 
If we are the Lord's people, God is truth. And we do not let go of him easily. We, we certainly will not let go of him. Will he even be prepared to die for the Lord and for his cause? But not this, as it were, this King Jehoash. Also the shortened version, Joash. And we see what he eventually did. When Jehoadiah, the priest, died, Jehoadiah's son, Zechariah, spoke out against this ungodly king. And Joash, what did he do? He had Zechariah the prophet killed. He ordered his death. The very son of the priest who saved him, he had him put to death. An ungodly young man. He proved to be a murderer. He proved to be an enemy of the true church. And we've got to be very careful. As we said, outward appearances can be very, very deceiving. People can do lots of things for church buildings and spend hours mowing the grass. And I'm not decrying any of these things. Cleaning the toilets, doing all kinds of things. That's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you, you love God. You have faith in Jesus Christ. And your hope is built on nothing less than His blood and His righteousness. And you prize Him. And you prize His people. And you acknowledge yourself to be an unworthy sinner. But that was not this man, Joash. An ungodly man. He had the breaches of the temple repaired, but... So quick was he, as soon as the Syrians rose up and King Haziel came up against Judah, he gave everything up so quickly. Now our minds are turned here in chapter 13 to another, another. We read, in the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Samaria, and he reigned 17 years, and he did that which was even in the sight of the Lord. Now, as I mentioned, this sin just keeps being named time and time again. This is a breaking of the second commandment, and this is what we have in the first part of this chapter, how the Lord, even now the Lord is so angry because there was no turning from this. Well, Baal worship seems to have largely ceased in Israel. It wasn't completely done away with, I'm sure. But by and large, it had stopped. But he continued, he perpetuated in this sin of Jeroboam. And the groves were not torn down. The high places of worship, these places that were not sanctioned by the Lord. Only one place was sacrificed to be offered, and that was at Jerusalem. Yes, we've mentioned there are synagogues and there are the cities of the Levites throughout Israel, but in none of those places was it ever sanctioned by the Lord that there should be an offering. That place of sacrifice was only to be in Jerusalem. And we read in verse 3, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why? Well, because of this ongoing sin, this continuing on with this golden calf worship and offering up sacrifice in those places. That's why the anger of the Lord 
came upon Israel because they didn't turn from it. And the anger of the Lord, look at verse 3, was kindled against Israel. We shouldn't be surprised at verse 3 because they continued on to offer up sacrifice. Do you remember the sign that was given Jeroboam? The Lord split the altar where Jeroboam offered up sacrifice. Jeroboam the first saw many things. He even saw a prophet slain. First Kings 13. How can you write back to there? Remember how the lion even ate the prophet. And there was an ass there as well. And it was untouched. And that was a lesson to Israel. The Lord is angry with his unsanctioned worship, with his idolatry. And here again, this anger of the Lord comes up against Israel. And notice, and he, that is the Lord, delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria. See, the Lord will. The Lord cannot countenance sin in a nation that is named after him. Now, this is implacable, and this is unacceptable in the Lord's eyes. To worship an inanimate object made by a man's own hands, my friends, is insane. It makes man to be an imbecile. Really, that's what it is. And I'm not being rude, but that's what you are. If you worship an object, and you say that object is God, you're either possessed with Satan, or you're mad. You're an imbecile. Now, I don't mean to be offensive, and God's word condemns it. Strictly, Exodus 20, verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything, that is in heaven above or anything that is beneath to bow down and to worship it, whether it, it's anything, an angel, an object, you shall not worship these things. But people do, and they perpetuate in this. Friends, this sin has not gone away. It's still live and kicking today, and men will go to hell for it. God is the sole object of worship. And if we worship anything else, I must say God is greatly incensed and God will judge it. It's the highest insult that we can give to God. And it's self-destructive. Think of what that reduces you to be. An idiot, a fool, to worship something else other than God. He alone, my friends, is worthy of worship. Why make something? You're almost making yourself to be a God because you made that. You're putting on your, yourself on the very plane of God to worship something that somebody else has made. Now what does God do here? He deploys the wicked people of Syria and puts them upon Israel. That's what he does. That's what he thinks of this sin. What is God doing? He is simply keeping true to his covenant promise of Deuteronomy 28. What did he say there? But it shall come to pass, Deuteronomy 28, 15, if thou wilt not hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all his commandments, 
and his statutes which I command thee this day, all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And you can read there from verse 15 right through to the verse 68. Curse upon curse, woe upon woe upon that nation Israel if they disobeyed God. You see, they were not under a covenant of grace. Israel were never as a nation under a covenant of grace. They were under a covenant of works, just like Adam and just like Eve. Now, in the covenant of grace, God always meets, as it were, the requirements. He puts his law in our hearts to do his will. That's what we have in the covenant of grace. This is the new covenant, the Lord said. I will put my laws in their hearts to do my will. And uh, when in that covenant of grace, it is entirely dependent upon God. Because God gives a new heart, new desire. You cannot be in the covenant of grace, uh, as it were, by race or by, by bloodline. Look at Jacob and Esau, two different sons. One was in the covenant of grace and one wasn't. Both Jews, both Israelites, but one saved by grace, the other not. It's all entirely of God's mercy. But here, Israel, I remind you, are under a covenant, as it were, of works. It was remedial and depended upon them to perform these things. Failure to do so meant God's wrath. And there in Deuteronomy 28, verse 25, we read, The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies, and thou shalt go one way against them, and flee seven ways before them, and thou shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. That will be finally completed for Israel in the north in the year 722 BC. It's a solemn reminder, isn't it? That God is always true to his covenant promises. It's also a covenant, a promise to us that God is, and a sweet comfort to us, that God is true to his sweet covenant of grace. That God will never fail in his covenant toward his elect. Remember, he said to Abraham, Abraham, in blessing, I will bless thee. He never said, Abraham, it's dependent upon you. He put Abraham into a deep sleep, and God passed between the divided portions of the animals, saying, Abraham, this is all dependent upon me, Abraham, not you. Abraham failed. We know how he lied, at least twice, and I'm sure many other times, as we all have as sinners. Now, coming back here, our minds are turned to Jehoahaz. Now, you notice in verse 4, Jehoahaz and the nation Israel, God has brought these enemies, Syria, upon them. But what does Jehoahaz do? It says, he besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him. Now, he didn't seek in a godly way. He did pray. But I must remind you that even the praying of the wicked is sin. Just as the plowing of the wicked is sin, the praying of the wicked is sin. But God gives some respite. And this ought to, the fact that God hearkened, ought to really have made him change. But he doesn't change. Notice, 
as we read on, verse 4, And Jehoahaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, and he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Israel uh, of Syria oppressed them. Now notice, and the Lord gave Israel a savior. Now we don't know who that savior is, a deliverer, a judge. We can conjecture, I suppose, but that wouldn't be profitable. The fact is, we're told that the Lord raised up a savior, gave Israel a savior, so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians. There's a period here of respite, rest from the enemies. And the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. It simply means that they, they dwelt in relative safety for a period of time. The threat seemed to have taken away because the Lord indeed so worked that the Syrians didn't invade the land and they weren't fearing. Now here's the point. If you look at the text, God here gives Israel in the north some reprieve. Jehoahaz, he prays and the Lord gives Rest. Now, this ought to have been a sign of the power of God to this nation and to this king. The fact that God heard, although it was no doubt from the lips and from the heart of an ungodly king, this ought to have made him think, there is a God in heaven. And I, I know this, there have been people that perhaps have prayed, they're not Christians. They're in a desperate state. God has heard their prayer. But there's no change. No change in that person's life whatsoever. Their prayer has been answered. But it's temporal. And you see that there's been no change in them. The Lord here has given some reprieve. But let me say this, there's no genuine repentance. This was a prayer from Jehoahaz just for relief. And that's how it is for some people. Lord, I'm in this situation. I'm in a fix. I'm in trouble. And the Lord gives some relief. But there's no change in that person. There's no thanks. There's no gratitude. That's the unsaved heart, my friend. That is the unsaved heart. You see, verse 6, if you notice, verse 6 demonstrates that they didn't cry out in repentance because if there was true repentance, and if there was true, if there was a really a revival, if these people were really born again, if this king was truly born again, he would have changed his ways. Look at verse 6. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam made Israel sin, but walked therein. They, they continued to practice false worship. Yes, in the name of God, but in their own way. And many are like that. False worship, the charismatic movement. People know certain things are wrong. They do things in the name of Christianity, but they just carry on because it pleases them. There's no change. There's no turning. It's a re another reminder, isn't it? And the first point here this morning, sometimes often when people are faced with difficulty 
And because of temporal trouble, there's even a praying. But it's not sincere. It's only for deliverance. It's not prayer of repentance. My friends, every time I pray and every time you pray, there's always something to repent about, surely, isn't there? There's not a day, there's not a minute of my life that I should not be repenting. I never worship God as I want or should do. As his word prescribes, that should be true of us. It, it is true of us. And we therefore should be repenting, always repenting. The Christian never stops repenting. And the Christian should never stop reforming and conforming himself to Christ. Never. We should never stop that. And let me say this. Only the new birth will actually work that in a soul. Otherwise a man will continue to live for himself. Oh, just relieve me from this. I need this. I need that. I need this. That's people's prayers. God, give me, give me, give me, give me. Give me this. Give me that. Give me this. That's the sum and substance of many people's lives who would call themselves Christians. Lord, give me. Rather than, Lord, what should I render to thee? And it is always the prayer of the true believer. Psalm 116, what shall I render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? It's the benefits of salvation. It's the blessing of the cup of Christ of the sufferings of Christ. The psalmist says, I will take the cup and pay my vows now before the Lord and his presence and the presence of all of his people. That's what I'll do. I'll honor God with my life. I'll serve him. But they serve their own ends. Now you notice verse 7, neither did he. And here is going to speak about how the king of Syria, Haziel, did not leave the people of Israel any fighting force now. Notice how in verse 6, but they walked therein and remained also the grove in Samaria. This grove was this high place that should never have been there. It was mystical worship never sanctioned by God. And that we should have nothing to do with. We should always worship in spirit and in truth. Sadly, so many are taken up with mysticism and carnal worship. But the Lord Jesus said, my people, they worship me in spirit and in truth. But people don't want the truth. They want less sermons, more singing, more music. Not the truth. Well, they didn't turn. And as a result, neither did he, that is the king of Syria, leave of the people to Jehoahaz, but 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen for the king of Syria had destroyed them and he made them like the dust by threshing. The Israeli army had been so systematically devastated and reduced. Look, 50 horsemen, 10 chariots. That's hardly a fighting force. And 10,000 footmen. Nothing left, really, of this whole nation. 
And so you can see how God has reduced them to almost nothing. And this was just as Elisha had prophesied, didn't he? In 2 Kings 8, according to the word of the Lord, all has come to pass. How Haziel would rip open even the wombs of the mothers. The men are slayed. They are now widows. Many are orphans. There are no men to fight. It's destruction. It's systematic. It's comprehensive. The force of Israel was now nothing compared to the fighting army of Syria. Now notice verse 8. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. So you can read further details there. And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, reigned in his stead. In the thirty and seventh year of Joash, king of Judah, began Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, to reign over Israel in Samaria sixteen years. Now you notice in verse 9 and 10, we saw just last time we saw the name Joash, it's a shortened form of Jehoash. So at the same time, just for a few years, there are two kings by the name of Joash or Jehoash. It can be very complex. I don't want to complicate it any more than it is, but I hope you see that there. And the names are differentiated there just for our ease of reading. Now we come to this period here, verse 11 and he, that is Joash, son of Jehoahaz of Israel, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Again, we're reading it, who made Israel to sin. But he walked therein. And the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and his might wherewith he fought against Amaziah. And by the way, some of these chapters now are reflecting back on the past. And we'll see that here today. We'll see that in the next week. We'll read about Amaziah in the next chapter, chapter 14. And uh, here in chapter 13 and verse 14 is where we want to pick up. But I'll read from verse 13. And Joash, that's by the way the king of Israel, slept with his fathers. And Jeroboam, that's Jeroboam the second. Because remember there was Jeroboam the first. In the day shortly after Solomon, now Jeroboam. That's Jeroboam II, sat upon his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now I want you to notice, as we come to verse 14, this is looking back in time near the end of Elisha's life. And you notice here, Joash, king of Israel, was still alive. So notice verse 14, now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. Now notice, and Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face. Now, by the way, this king had never had anything to do with the prophet really before. He hardly knew him. But now you've got to remember that Israel has been, the fighting army has been reduced to almost nothing. God's hand of anger has come upon the nation. And he comes to the prophet and he says, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. He sees that Elisha is on his deathbed. Now, we notice here in the first place, 
that Elisha's death is very different to Elijah's, isn't it? Elijah was taken up by horses and chariots of fire and a great whirlwind. And in fact, Elijah prayed that he would die. But the Lord never answered that prayer. It's amazing. The Lord just took him up. Remember how he, he prayed that he would die because of the terrible torments that he was having from Jezebel and Ahab. How he was hunted down. How they killed the prophets and how he feared for his life. But the Lord took him away. The Lord spared him. But it's a reminder here as well, in the second place, that death comes to us all, friends, doesn't it? Each and every one of us. We're all going to die. We don't know how the Lord's going to end our life. The scriptures say it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Now, how will it fare for us in the day of judgment? Will we prove to be men and women of faith who love the Lord, who serve the Lord here below? But look at the faithful old Elisha. And even on his deathbed, we see the Spirit of God working in him. It's tremendous, isn't it? We see here how there is even instruction and how the Lord is still speaking here through this prophet to this nation. And what we have here in verses 14 to 25 are a number of very important lessons and searching matters concerning whether we are in the faith or not, whether we have genuine saving faith, not like Joash here. We never really had faith, I submit to you. We need to examine our own hearts. Because if we have faith, faith will be real and it will be active. It will be seen in the life, my friend. It will not just be some nebulous thing we have in the mind. But faith without works is, James says, dead. What we will see is First of all, the enduring word of God. God's word is always fulfilled. Secondly, we'll see God's promise of success. It's always by obedience to his word. You, you can't know God's blessing apart from obedience. The other thing we'll see is we can't believe God's word too much. We see that in the, the lesson and the analogy that's given here. Something else, it's God that gives the increase. And we'll see the vital lessons, fourthly, of the importunity of faith. Faith takes the opportunity that God gives, and it does not cease to lay hold upon God's promises. And then, I trust we'll learn that many have an apparent faith, spurious but it shows itself to have no confidence in the Word of God. You know, that's where the real test is. Do we believe God's Word? I know a lot of people talk about faith. But how do you view God's Word? It's faith in the Word. And the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. So firstly, we see the aging prophet here, Elisha. His life is coming to an end. Verse 14, Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. As I said, it's a reminder to us all, we're going to die. Now, death never looks glorious, does it? We see him dying, and I saw somebody this last week who I was able to spend a little time with. Death never looks glorious, even for a Christian. Yes, a Christian dies in faith, 
But when we see somebody dying, we don't see beyond, do we? We see the body. But beyond, the soul goes to be with the Lord. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. The spirit to God who gave it. But we can't see it. Well, we saw it with Elijah, but we don't see it here with Elisha. But death is glorious for the believer. Let me say, that believer goes to be with God. And you know, Elisha serves as a wonderful type of Christ. Think of the Lord Jesus as he was dying. Men would behold that dead body upon the cross. And yet he, he said to the thief that day, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Today. Didn't look like much. But for those who die in the Lord, it's a blessed end. Well, we see here. And our time is short, isn't it? Look at Elisha. Look at his life. He did. All the calculations I've done, twice as many more miracles as Elijah. Just pointing to Christ, really, in the ultimate sense. But it reminds us that our time is short. The psalmist says, Moses says in Psalm 90, he says, teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Why? Because our days are very short. He says, if our days, if our years be threescore years, or threescore and ten, at seventy, by reason of strength, they be few. Even if they fourscore years, we're cut off and soon we fly away. And then he says, so, so, therefore, teach us to number our days. You number things that you value. My friend, what are we doing with our time? Have we spent our days well? Have we spent them for the Lord? This is why Paul says, My brethren, therefore, always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Time is short. He says, Know that your labor is not in vain. Your time is short. The Lord is at hand, and our day of departure is at hand. And it's blessed to those who die in the Lord, who rest from their labors. Here we see him still laboring as an old man for the cause of the Lord. But we have this, in the first place here, this uncharacteristic visit from this king. He'd never had time for him. Verse 11, this king, Joash, who did evil in the sight of the Lord, now he comes to see the aging, dying prophet. And he says to him, he comes with words of piety. It's amazing, look at the words. Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. He's using the same words that he, Elisha gave to Elijah when he heard that Elijah was going to be taken up. It's almost as if he's learned these words verbatim. There are many people that learn religious talk, but there's nothing of God in their heart. Look at his words. Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. I'm wondering if he's thinking that he's going to be taken up in the same way. Who knows? But he's full of religious language, but he knew nothing of the God of Elisha. And there's so many like that. Maybe he's just fearing, well, I've only got 50 horsemen now. I've only got 10 chariots. I've only got 10,000. 
You can see what a desperate state Israel is in. And maybe he's panicking. What is going to be left? Going to be on my own? Well, yes, if you don't have God, my friend. All the religious and pious talk will do you no good if you don't know God. That's why Job says, Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Are you at peace with God? Do you know the Lord? Well, these are pious words. Maybe he even believed them. But he didn't know the God of Elisha. It's a strange world, isn't it? And the irony is that there's so many people who may even know of the Lord Jesus, but they have no time for him. This, this king had no time to acquaint himself with the greatest power. Here before him was one who was giving military intelligence before to kings, because God had given it to him, but he had had no time for the Lord. You know, the greatest power is God. People claim they believe God, but how little time they give to God. How little time people give to coming to the house of God. We should avail ourselves to every single meeting that we can possibly get to and come under the instruction of God's word. Oh, but we get more time for the television and the radio and things like that today. That's so much of the so-called churchgoers. More time for the things of this world rather than God. That was this man. And so many are like that. Whether it's sports, whether it's this, that. You look and see how much time so many professing Christians have for the Lord and how much time they have for other things. It's a sad day. And Elisha said unto him, Well, he receives him. Take bow and arrows. I want you to see. He comes to him. He sees, he knows the man's in stress. And Elisha said to him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And what does he do? First of all, he gives this king an example to follow. He puts his hand over his, and he, we're told here, he said to the king of Israel, put thine hand upon the bow, and he put his hand upon it, and Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands, and he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it, and Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said what that shot meant. Notice, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. That's what it meant. And then he says to him, now, take the bows and shoot the ground, smite the ground. Notice what he says. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. That's what the arrow meant. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in effect. There's the promise, till thou have consumed them. Now he says, what does he say? In verse 18, and he said, take the arrows, and he took them, and he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. He didn't have one arrow, he had many arrows in the quiver. And he said, smite the ground. And what did he do? He smote thrice, and he stopped. And the prophet Elisha was angry. Why? Because he had more arrows than he could have shot. 
It showed that he really didn't believe. He didn't believe. He's thinking, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? If he really believed, he would have shot the ground, as it were, till there was absolutely nothing left. And he would have shot with all of his might, but he didn't. And you notice the fulfillment of all this? You notice the close of this chapter? Verse 25, And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times, there's the fulfillment. Did Jehoash beat him and recovered the cities of Israel? But only three times. If he'd have shot everything in there, it would have meant decisive, endless victory. But it wasn't. Now there's a lesson. Do you not see the lesson? There was no zeal in him. Why? Because there wasn't really faith in the living God. And I have to say, I think there are many that fall in that category. If they really believe the word of God, they would lay hold upon it. They would be importunate. Think about the Lord Jesus when he describes that woman uh, there in Luke's gospel. The importunate woman. And what does she she do? She prays and prays. She, She beseeches the king. As it were. She pleads with him. And then she's heard. The Lord said, even so, you should pray. But he said, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find those who really have genuine faith? My friend, if we believe God's word, we truly take God at his word, don't we? And this is something here that the prophet failed, not the prophet, that the king failed to do. He failed to receive the prophet's word. And understandably, Elisha was angry. He was wroth. Because he explained what these arrows meant. The fact is he just didn't believe it. It wasn't in the heart. And he had no reason to doubt. Had the Lord not delivered before? He had. But you see, there was no, ultimately, there was no heart for the Lord. It wasn't that he just didn't believe. He didn't care. He didn't really care about the house of the Lord. He didn't care about the fact that they were continuing on in golden calf worship. And let me say this, people who continue to compromise with worship don't really care about the Lord. And they don't actually believe that God will bring down his wrath upon them for compromises and compromises in the life. Half-hearted? Because really he was only wanting his own deliverance. Only concerned now, 10,000 men. Wasn't really concerned for the glory of God. And my friends, faith is always concerned for the glory of God. Not just self-preservation, not self-preservation, but God's glory. That's what we should be concerned about, God's glory. Not just being preserved as a nation, not just being kept, but for the honor of his name. You see, there is an inseparable relationship 
between the sovereignty of God in all things and the responsibility of man. This king had a responsibility to shoot the arrows. And the fact that he only shot a few arrows really shows that he didn't believe God and he was taking no responsibility. There's no contradiction. And let me say this, God knows who he is. Nothing is left to chance here. God knew that this king would only shoot three arrows. And my friend, God knows who's going to pitch up to the next prayer meeting and who's not. It's not like God's dependent upon anybody here. We're not his hands, we're not his feet. But he is pleased to work through us. We have to believe that. It's not like he needs us. But you see, this whole of your life is a test whether you know the Lord or not. And will reveal on which side of the judgment you will be on that great judgment day. Whether you have had faith in Christ. Whether you have believed upon his finished work. Augustine said we must pray as it all depended upon God, but work as it all depended on us. That should be the life. You know, it's all very well. Some people say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. Yeah, he is. But he'll, he will not honor those who disobey him. Well, much more to say as we seek to try to draw now to a conclusion. We've seen the fulfillment of this, verse 24 and verse 25. But there is more. I want you to see there is... A miracle done at the end, even of Elisha's life. Elisha is buried, and he is put in a tomb. And we're told that the Moabites came out. There was war. And what happened? And Elisha died, verse 20, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. So here's the picture. He's in the tomb, and they're burying a man now, and they happen to bury him in the same sepulcher or tomb of Elisha. And this man's bones touches Elisha's, and he comes to life. And this reminds us, doesn't it, that really the power of God was not only at present in this man's life, but God's word is extremely powerful in terms of the fact that while he's dead, the prophet still speaks, in a sense, this power, this power in the word that came through this prophet. There was no power in Elisha as such. But this points us to a greater than Elisha, surely, the Lord Jesus. Through his death, it's through his sufferings that we have life, isn't it? I think it's, it does serve as somewhat of a picture. It's by the death of Christ, the prophet, priest, and king, that we have life. Elisha really had no power in himself. He's dead. His spirit has gone to be with the Lord. But you see, this was of the Lord. It's what it's showing us. It is of the Lord. It's not so much of Elisha. Elisha's spirit is now with the Lord. But the power is of God, and it points to a greater. 
the Lord Jesus. He is called the first fruits, isn't he? Of all that rise, that's the Lord Jesus. Elijah, as we've seen in our previous studies, Elisha's predecessor, was a picture of John the Baptist calling the nation to repentance. But the life was in one that was greater than Elisha, one that was greater than Solomon, one that was greater than David, God's eternal son. And it's because of his dead body that we shall not face death. And the fact that he lives, as he said, ye shall live also. And then we notice all that comes now to this nation. And yet, look at verse 23. The Lord was gracious unto them. So this man rises. It, surely that would have been a, a sign to the people, wouldn't it? That God's blessing is still here. But look, and the Lord was gracious unto them. That's Israel. And had compassion on them. And had respect unto them. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, that was a covenant of grace, my friends. That's what we were speaking about earlier. God had promised to father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would have a people through Jesus Christ, the seed, that very seed, the seed of Abraham, that he would come into the world that he would have a people as vast as the sands of the seashore. Why is God preserving this nation, Israel, to bring in Jesus Christ, my friends? So that when we read in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law. Why? To redeem us under the law. Because of a covenant of grace that he made with Abraham. Abraham, I will bless thee. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1, and we're also reminded in chapter 2, that Christ took not on him the seed of angels, but on the seed of Abraham, the promised family of Abraham. And who are they? Well, Paul reminds us in Galatians 3, that if we believe upon Jesus Christ, we are sons of Abraham. We belong to the family of faith. And my friend, if you belong to the family of faith, you will not be like Joash. You will not be like these ungodly kings. You will be concerned with the pure worship of the Lamb. You'll be concerned to worship Him and Him alone. Him who cannot and should never be represented by some object. It's terrible. You see these images that people make of Jesus Christ. Some pathetic long-haired man. And we're told that long hair is an abomination to the Lord. We don't know what he looks like. And there's nothing on record on Scripture that we're told this is what he looked like. But we are told how he lived and how he loved and how we should love him and how we should live for him and live to his glory. We don't kiss a picture 
and we think we're going to be blessed by some picture or some object. But we kiss the sun by faith. Psalm 2, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and ye perish in the way. But blessed are they that put their trust in him. Have you kissed him? I mean, with your heart. Do you love him? Do you love him sincerely? He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. You'll keep my commandments. For the Christian, they're not grievous. May we have love to Christ. Think of all that he is, my friend. Creator of the world. He was the lamb, laid down his life to become our king. Love him at all times. Not just when times are bad, like this foolish king. You come to God when you're in need. You're in need every moment of your life, my friend. You love him, you repent, and God will give blessing to those who honor him. Use every arrow of prayer God gives you. Use every opportunity to serve him. Be zealous for the Lord. Amen.